seriously sick patient known as the U.S. economy is showing signs of recovery. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Things are bad right now, make no mistake. Unemployment is at record high. COVID-19 is far from being wiped out. And those businesses that haven't shut down are struggling to survive. But we could be looking at some signs of life. Recent data from Prime Revenue, a provider of financial tech for working capital management, shows that certain consumer sectors aren't doing as poorly as we might have thought, even when compared to results from last year when the economy was still booming. We delve into those numbers today with Prime Revenue CEO P.J. Bain. He offers the latest statistics on two aspects of consumer spending, staples and discretionary purchases. And at the other end of the supply chain, he explains the significance of a recent uptick in the number of suppliers seeking early payment on their invoices and why, in uncertain times, cash is king. So here is my conversation with P.J. Bain. P.J. Bain, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here with you today. Based on your data and your research, P.J., are we actually seeing signs of recovery in the U.S. and the world? Well, what I would say is there's hope. One of the things that I think we've learned since the pandemic really took hold in March and April is the only certainty that we can have confidence in right now is uncertainty. I think we've sort of stabilized into a new sense of normal, and I think we see different sectors of the economy that show promise and show hope. I wouldn't say that we're anywhere near where we were a year ago, particularly in the U.S., where the economy was very good and and we were very optimistic about growth. But I'll also say that our data is indicating that we're roughly bouncing along where we were a year or so ago, plus or minus a few percentage points. We expect it to be that way for a while. And I think if you take the most pessimistic views of when the pandemic started six months ago now, eight months ago now, it's a much better position than many of the bears on the economy would have put us in. We anticipated we probably would be in a little bit worse shape than we are today. So it's not nearly as bad as as it was. There are signs of hope, but still a long way to go to get out of this hole that we're in. Let's break down consumer spending into two pieces, uh, consumer staples and consumer discretionary. Starting with consumer staples, the stuff that everybody really needs, you're saying it has shown strong resiliency throughout the pandemic. I guess I'm not surprised to hear that. I mean, people still need this stuff. You say that in September, same store sales uploads volume in 2020 were less than a quarter percent below 2019. So that part of it at least looks pretty positive, but I guess we're not surprised, right? We're not surprised about that so much that you can break those consumer staples down into other areas, food and beverage, et cetera. That that sector continues to be very stable and very solid. It never really had massive dips. There were disruptions within the supply chain. There continue to be 
challenges within factory closings or processing center closings or hotspot outbreaks that will close facilities or certain portions of the supply chain. So there is disruption. There is volatility. There is reasons to be concerned in certain sectors, but it's remained relatively consistent. So that portion of the economy has shown resilience and stability throughout the pandemic when you compare it with prior years on a global basis. And it doesn't really matter whether you talk about the Americas region, whether we talk about the EMEA region, or whether we talk about the Asia-Pacific region, that sector of consumer staples has really remained very stable and consistent throughout the entire pandemic. I should clarify, I think I said September. I meant between March and September. Those were your figures there for that period of time. Okay, let's move over to consumer discretionary, what we all know was strongly affected by the pandemic. And here's a surprise, at least to me. You're saying that 2020 volumes steadily increased through September 2nd, 29% above 2019 levels, pre-pandemic levels. How is that possible? Can you explain that apparently pretty positive statistic? There's actually been a couple of peaks. We feel like that's a peak. I'm not sure how long that's going to be sustained. But there was actually something to me that was almost more surprising And that was the first peak that I mentioned. That sector was doing okay. It wasn't doing great at the beginning of the year, sort of Mm pre-pandemic. When the pandemic hit, we actually saw a pretty consistent increase in invoice uploads on our platform, which are indicative of global purchasing volumes by large buyers, retail clients in this sector. And over a four-week period, which sort of culminated with the peak being the first week of April, around April 6th, we were about 2% above 2019 levels, so slightly above, but that was four weeks into the pandemic. A lot of that was driven by two, obviously you can break down these sectors into a lot of sort of subsectors, and two of the subsectors that we saw that were really driving the improvement were a home improvement, do-it-yourself, DIY retailers, and the other is automotive aftermarket. So the stores where you would go and buy spark plugs and your own do-it-yourself improvements on automotive, on your car. We saw that peak, and we speculate that that peak was really driven by a couple of things. We were four weeks into the pandemic. Most consumers were still relatively stable as, as far as the layoffs really didn't hit until after that period of time for the most part in most places of the world. And so people were sort of at home, stuck at home, working and looking at projects that they have around the house and projects on their cars. Part of that is driven by they're doing the work themselves as opposed to maybe spending money with contractors or taking the car to the dealership or even maybe purchasing a new car. So it seems like the large capital expenditure type of things were not areas that uh, new car sales were certainly down. And we saw that peak early on April 6th. After that, we actually saw a pretty consistent drop-off over a period of time for almost five weeks. So through early May, with sort of the low peak hitting on May 11th, we saw a pretty consistent decline in the 10-day rolling average of what that volume looked like. And that lowest point actually hit 30% below 2019 levels. Then Mm -hmm. from May to September, as you mentioned, we bounced back very strongly over that period of time, driven by the same types of spending in uh, do-it-yourself, home improvement, 
and automotive aftermarket predominantly within that sector. But we've also seen a bounce back in certain regions of the world in things like new car purchases and larger discretionary spending by consumers. And when we talk about these same store sales or store sales at all, are we actually talking about purchases that were made in physical stores as opposed to online or the combination of the two? Where were these purchases being made? It is a combination of the both with many of the do-it-yourself home improvement retailers as well as automotive aftermarket. They still have significant brick and mortar. We have seen dramatic and massive improvement in online purchases, but they may be driving to the store and picking them up or the store may be delivering it. It's still a combination that we're seeing in terms of both brick and mortar locations that are fulfilling the orders as well as online presence. We know that many of our clients have been investing heavily in online retail presence to be able to compete with the large global purely online retailers. But we're seeing an investment in both physical presence to stock the inventory as well as online presence. So it's really a combination of both. I'm just wondering, because at least in the early part of the pandemic, so many of these stores were actually closed. You couldn't even go to them. If you're going to make purchases at all, they had to be online. And while that's loosened up subsequently to a certain extent, I'm still surprised that the store sales are as high as they are, given the fact that so many of the stores were not even accessible. A lot of them are order ahead. And a lot of our do-it-yourself retailers have been open throughout the pandemic with very limited access and very limited strict controls. But the purchase ticket size is going up. So while there may be fewer people in the stores, the ticket size that people are purchasing during that period of time is actually increasing. So that, so that is one of the things that's balancing it out. Let's move upstream in the supply chain and talk about the supplier side, because I believe that you have identified during the period under review an uptick in demand for early payment by suppliers. What's the significance of that? So I think during any period of volatility, one of the biggest shock absorbers that you have to guard against uncertainty is cash. And I think one of the things that many economists were worried about were the liquidity that banks could inject into the system. Obviously, there were global stimulus packages, very strong stimulus packages in the U.S. We saw similar stimulus packages across Europe and in other parts of the world that were working very hard to inject liquidity into businesses to, to maintain it. One of the things that supply chain finance providers broadly and prime revenue specifically can provide is immediate access to cash, provide a marketplace where suppliers can sell their invoices to, to a number of financial institutions that will purchase those invoices, providing mm -hmm. immediate liquidity for their accounts receivable. On a normal basis, we track along in the low to mid 70%. So we were tracking pre-pandemic at around 70% of the invoices that were on our platform that were available to be sold were being sold by suppliers. So a supplier has an option to sell that invoice, collect cash immediately if they elect, and if they don't elect, they can hold that invoice until maturity, next 60 days or whatever it may be. In a normal situation, 70% are sold or early getting immediate access to cash and 30% are held until the mature date. Let me clarify something there of what PJ for a moment while we're talking about selling invoices. When a supplier in this kind of situation sells an invoice, are they agreeing to a discount off those invoices or are they getting the full amount of the invoice? They will sell the invoice at a very small discount compared to what their normal financing rates will cost. Uh -huh. In virtually every instance, 
the supplier has an opportunity to sell that invoice at a discount that will be considerably lower than any financing cost that they would have against a working line of credit that would be secured by that account receivable or a, a typical factoring relationship. Yeah, or, lower or than if they had may agreed to an early payment discount directly with buyer of their services. That's I correct. See. Okay, so they access to cash is absolutely important. Does this signify any kind of a concern we should have about the stability and continuity of these suppliers in this terrible economy? Or is it simply that it's not that uh, dire, they just need the cash to do whatever they need to do to keep going? One of the things that we saw, we've been talking about the volumes in terms of the uploads. And if upload volumes go, we see those as going down. That means that overall purchases are going down. And that's a harbinger for the overall macro economy. A way to mitigate that strategy is to be able to get access to cash more quickly, to be able to accelerate your receivables into cash. And that normal 70% that we saw pre-pandemic actually sort of spiked up into the 90s for a period of time and averaged around the mid-80s in Q3. So suppliers have access to that cash to offset the downturn so that they can collect their cash faster, improve their cash conversion cycles on their business to provide them the cash cushion that they need to be survivable. So what we're seeing is that that actually significantly helped the viability and the sustainability of the businesses of those suppliers during that period of time to where we retain, we sort of have regained back where we are today is we're plus or minus a few percentage points across most of the industry sectors and across the macro economy that we see. And it's about a quarter of a trillion dollars a year that that we see across our platform. So it's a significant amount. And it is a good indicator for most of the sectors that we see on a macro economy level to where we're back to 2019 levels. I think it becomes a problem, obviously, for any business. It would be hard for any business to sustain over many, many quarters, the types of drop-offs that we saw in different sectors for weeks at a time in Q2 to the tune of 30% across the macro economy that we see, all of our programs globally, 60% in some sectors. We had a few sectors that we saw 90% drop-offs in terms of the, the upload volume, which is indicative that that entire industry sector is off on a global basis of 90% or 60% or 30% respectively. Mm -hmm. The ability to be able to pull triggers and leverage tools like supply chain finance to accelerate your cash flow during periods of that instability got those suppliers through that period of time to where now they're not where they wanted to be. But we're actually, given the circumstances, I think we're all relatively lucky. And what we're seeing is suppliers were able to weather the storm through their own stimulus of, of basically accelerating their AR collections by selling their invoices. Weather the storm, yes, but I'm just wondering now going forward, are there still supply uncertainties? We talk about the fear of a second wave of the virus. Have we seen, for instance, any more factory closures? Or are those basically up and running now? Or is there the risk of factory closures that might disrupt supply and cause more problems going forward? We are certainly seeing more closures. We're in a situation, as you and I talk today, where we have rolling closures occurring across different European countries today. Mm-hmm. You know, One of our offices in Europe is affected by a two-week shutdown within the Czech Republic. So we're seeing those types of closures. I think one of the things that's happened, especially in factory operating environments, is 
over the last eight months, and really this has been the case for probably the last two or three months at least, the corporate clients that we work with have found a new normal. So when one factory goes down, they're able to ramp up production. They've been able to work through many of the supply chain disruptions and to find a way to sort of make sure that they're continuing to produce at the levels that they need to to be able to meet the demand. Despite the global nature of the pandemic, they are finding other places of the world to produce if they need to shift. We're shifting production around. So if they have a right. plant that's down in the Czech Republic, maybe a plant in Sweden is going to ramp up production or fill that gap. Right. Okay. Um, and the suppliers, the, the communication with the suppliers is dramatically improved as well to be able to manage that demand and the, and the impacts on the disruptions within the supply chain. So looking ahead, 2021, I know we've got to get past this peak holiday shopping season, and I imagine most of the goods intended for that are already manufactured, either on the way or sitting in inventory or, for that matter, even in the stores. But let me deal you some wild cards, some possible wild cards for 2021. The impact of of more Fed action, interest rate rises, inflation. What impact might those factors have on working capital strategies going forward? Well, I think the Fed has been relatively clear that interest rates are going to remain low for a period of time, and I think that's going to be a requirement. I think it's likely that we will have more stimulus within the U.S. economy and and other economies around the world. I just saw earlier today where Jamie Dimon is calling for more stimulus activity as the banks release their earnings. When we look at spending, one of the things that I think about when I look at our data is I worry about two recoveries, a K-shaped recovery as opposed to a V-shaped recovery, where the more developed and wealthier portions of the economy are able to run through this relatively unscathed, but Mm -hmm. then lower income consumers are more dramatically affected. And I think government has a critical and very important role to play in that. So I think that is something that will drag down consumer staples. And while volume of consumer staples, the physical goods may be the same, the price may have to go very low. And we'll have to figure out what we do with that sort of at a social level around the world to make sure that the the people within our economies, the most vulnerable, are supported through this downturn. Because we're, we're seeing a lot of the consumer discretionary are home improvements. You have to own a home to be able to improve the home. You have to own a car to be able to improve a car. It's a luxury to make a decision not to purchase a new car right now. And I think those are the things that probably weigh most heavily on my mind, I think, as we look at recovery. So I think government stimulus is going to be important, especially for those components of the economy. I think for corporate clients, interest rates are going to remain relatively low for the foreseeable future. I think the demand is there in the sectors. Obviously, we don't have a tremendous amount of exposure to travel and leisure. That's obviously going to be affected. And how that translates to other components of the economy is yet to be determined. That's an area that that I worry about. In terms of inflation, that's a big unknown. I think that certainly we're due for some inflation. Long overdue, you Around the world. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's long overdue. But I also think that a lot of the things that would affect inflation are evenly spread around the world. So historically, when there's been times of great inflation, usually... It's a zero-sum game for for different economies around the world. It could be driven by a trade imbalance or a currency problem. I think every country in the world is dealing with the same thing at the moment. So I think this is a little bit unique as it relates to inflation. And there'll be a macroeconomic impact of that inflation on a global basis. And I think governments are going to be very interested to make sure that trade 
continues. Trade is going to have to continue to flow. So anything while the debt would certainly make you think that inflation is much overdue. I think that whether it's the Federal Reserve or the EU, the financial decision makers and the financial policy makers are going to make sure that they do everything they can to prioritize trade and consumer demand and consumer confidence that will drive corporate performance well, well ahead of inflation. So I I feel like inflation is a problem. It's in line. The the biggest problem that we've got to do is make sure that the wheels of commerce continue to to roll along all around the world. Maybe cash will continue to be king, too, on the supplier side. But P.J. Bain of Prime Revenue, I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand what's going on out there right now and, and, and providing us with a little bit of positive news about the potential for recovery of this economy in general. So thank you very much for being with me today. Really appreciate it. Bob, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with P.J. Bain of Prime Revenue, talking about the prospects for recovery of the U.S. and global economies. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.